There's nothing Jewish about Zionism. Yes, it has a facade of Jewishness and it claims to be Jewishness, which is why I named the subtitle of my book Zionism's Journey from Identity Crisis to Identity Theft. If somebody steals someone else's identity, of course he's going to claim the, that he's the person whose identity he stole, and he's going to display various characteristics of the person whose identity he stole, because he wants you to think he's actually him. And so, too, the Zionists want you to think that they're actually quintessential models of what Jewishness is supposed to be, but nothing can be further from the truth. The truth is, it's from Jewishness that the Zionists wanted to escape. It's just that they tried assimilating and just shedding their Jewishness, but anti-Semites attacked them anyway. So they couldn't be Jews, they didn't want to be Jews, and they weren't able to be non-Jews, so they created their own identity of Zionism, basically believing that the reason the anti-Semites hate them is because in the philosophy, at least, of Leo Pinsker, one of the early Zionists, and this is before Herzl, is because the Jews aren't a particular nationality. They're Americans, they're Frenchmen, they're Russians, but they're not. The anti-Semites don't want them to be included in their groups, so we're going to make our own group. It's going to be called the National Jews, Jewish nationalism. It's going to be called the nation of the Jews. Jewish nationalism will accomplish that. It's going to change a religion, a Jewishness, to a nationality, to the Jewish nation. And so they thought anti-Semitism would end with Zionism. Of course, this didn't work, and the whole idea was stupid to begin with. But when they created Zionism, they created not only a movement, they created a new nationality, a new personality, a new ideology, actually a new identity. And they had the whole world in front of them. They emptied the Jewish identity in their minds of everything Jewish. They emptied the Jewish identity of all content. And now they had the ability to replace it with whatever content they wanted. They were able to change Jewish identity in their minds to whatever they wanted it to be, whatever they would consider glorious and good and admirable. Now, there were various different Zionists that had various different ideas of what they wanted Jewishness to be. You had the leftist Zionists and the more right-wing Zionists. The leftist Zionists, people like Ben-Gurion, had a very strong dosage of socialism and communism in their Jewishness. Ben-Gurion was a big fan of Lenin. All of them had a great deal of organic uh, ethnic nationalism. And in my book, I list eight different ideologies that the Zionists took, various different Zionists and various different measures, uh, to create their new personality, their new Jewishness, uh, the following of the eight. Ethnic nationalism. Number two, the philosophy of the Ibermensch, of the philosophy Nietzsche. Three, the Russian revolutionary and workers' movements. Four, German romanticism, uh, in particular vitalism. Paganism, militarism, fascist nationalism, and Christianity. Today, we're going to focus on fascist nationalism and its influence on early and contemporary right-wing Zionism. One of the founding fathers of Zionism was a man by the name of Vladimir Jabotinsky, Jabotinsky is the forerunner of today's Likud party. In fact, Benjamin Netanyahu said that he considers himself a student of Jabotinsky. 
Netanyahu's father, Bensiyan Netanyahu, was in fact a secretary of Jabotinsky and the editor of Jabotinsky's party's magazine called Hadar. Jabotinsky's vision of what a Zionist should be, of what a Jew should be, is, and I quote Jabotinsky himself, the opposite of a Zhid, is what they used to call Jews in Russia. And he said that the ideal image of a Hebrew, that's what he called them, Hebrews, is going to be the diametric opposite of a Zhid. A Zhid, a Jew, is ugly, weak, and cowardly. A Zionist will be strong, have broad shoulders, know how to command, and will be charming. He said, in fact, that the picture that he wants to paint of a Zionist, what Jews should really become, there is no model to uh, compare it to. So instead, you need to take a Jew and take the opposite of all the character traits that Jews have, that Jids have, and the exact opposite of a Jew, that's what a Zionist is going to be. He said this, mind you, in a eulogy on Theodore Herzl in 1904. His point then was that Theodore Herzl was such a great man, he was just the opposite of what a Jew is. And that's what Zionists are going to be. Jabotinsky was particularly interested in transforming the Jews' penchant for peacefulness, nonviolence, instead opting for studies, intellectualism, and accomplishments of the mind and spirit as opposed to accomplishments of the body into a militaristic people. He was obsessed with militarism and obsessed with power. Jews always believed, uh, children are taught this, adults are taught this, it's in our Talmud, who is strong? He who conquers himself, he who conquers his urges. Jabotinsky didn't like that. He was so derisive and degrading uh, of Jews. He, he would have been considered an anti-Semite would he be here today. And Orthodox Jews considered him an anti-Semite at the time. Jabotinsky wrote about Jews, and I quote, They despised physical manhood, the principle of male power, as understood and worshipped by all free people in history. Physical force was of no use. But it wasn't just militarism that Jabotinsky taught. And it wasn't just a militant people that Jabotinsky wanted the Jews to become. Jabotinsky was infatuated with fascism, actual fascism, Mussolini's fascism. Not, I'm not talking today you call anybody who is overly right-wing a fascist, anybody who's a little authoritarian, you call him a fascist. I'm talking about Mussolini's fascist party. It's indisputable that Jabotinsky's party, his Zionism, was greatly influenced by fascism. Fascist nationalism is a mystical type of nationalism and a romantic type of nationalism. It's not merely like a nationalism where we're all loyal to our country and it's important to be patriotic and if my country is attacked, we should all go defend it. It's much more than that. Fascism elevates the violence necessary to defend a country to an actual ideal, to a mystical type part of being a nation, a romantic type part of being a nation. It doesn't look at violence as intrinsically bad, but merely necessary in certain exceptional cases, the way Judaism does. It doesn't look at violence as intrinsically bad. Violence could be a tool like anything else to accomplish the goals of the nation. It elevates the nation above the individual people. The nation is looked at as a gestalt, something greater than the whole of its parts, not in a religious way, but in a 
spiritual way. It, it actually takes political concepts and makes them into kind of a civic religion and makes them what we would call kind, kind of spiritual, what, what religious people would call spiritual, that dedication, that part of you, that place in a person's soul and personality where spirituality is important to him, uh, politics and particularly strength and power in that a similar, very similar way is important to the fascist. Fascist regimes also require strict obedience, dedication, and self-sacrifice. And in particular, not just strength, but national security is elevated to something akin to a romantic national myth. National security actually becomes not something that you have to do, not a necessity, but a romantic national calling. And the influence of regimes such as Mussolini's on Jabotinsky could probably best be seen in his Beitar youth groups. These are youth groups that Jabotinsky formed and trained. They had a great amount of a military training. Beitar, he called them. They were an acronym for Bris Trumpador. Trumpador was a Zionist soldier. He was missing one hand and he was killed at the Battle of Tel Chai before Israel was created. There are legends about this trumpador. When he died, his blood went into the soil and outgrew red flowers from them. This relationship between the soil and the blood of a person is this blood and soil type paganistic relationship people have with their land is also not Jewish. Zionists have absorbed this. To the Jews, the relationship to the land is holiness. To the Zionists, there's an organic connection between them, the blood, the people, and the land. This is already becoming a physical, racial, romantic kind of connection, not a religious connection that the Jews have. And legend has it, it's not true, but the Zionist legend has it that when Trumpador died, he said his last words were, it's good to die for your land. Jews, of course, don't believe it's good to die for your land. We don't die for anything except certain capital sins, uh, such as murder, for example, there are three of them. But aside from giving your life rather than commit these sins, Jews protect life, which is holy, even if it means violating the religion. It's not a violation of the religion. It's a fulfillment of the religion. If a person, for example, needs medicine that's not kosher or has to drive to the hospital on the Sabbath, the protection of life is a very fundamental Jewish value. But to the Zionists, it's good to die for your land. So Beitar, his youth groups, were named after this trumpador, and were also a celebration of the Bar Kokhba revolt named after the town of Beitar. Jabotinsky founded this Bris Trumpador in 1923 to train youths in Zionist ideology, self-defense, and the Hebrew language. In 1931, Jabotinsky was elected Reich Beitar, the head of these youth groups, who treated him more like a demigod than a military leader. I'm quoting now from historian Lenny Brenner, quote, Jabotinsky constantly explained that it was just an accident that his youth wore the same brown shirts as the Nazis' Sturmabteilung. It is known that the Beitarim did in fact attend fascist party training schools. Terrorist attacks on Zionist rivals were routine in Poland, end quote. By the way, Ben-Gurion used to refer to Jabotinsky as, quote, Vladimir Hitler. 
Not that Ben-Gurion was any more moral or better person than Jabotinsky, but they were Zionist rivals. In fascist tradition, violence was a way of obtaining national goals to Jabotinsky's people, not just merely a necessary evil. Speaking Hebrew was extremely important to Jabotinsky, that the Jews should speak Hebrew, because transforming the Jews into a Hebrew-speaking nation was crucial in general to Zionist nationalism. But the Beitar youth had a method of ensuring this would happen. They, quote, repeatedly broke up meetings in Yiddish on the grounds that speaking a diaspora language in Palestine was profaning Zion, end quote. The Revisionists, that was the name of Jabotinsky's party, which later became Echeirus party, which later in 1988 merged into the Likud, were in particular enamored with Italian fascism. Jabotinsky expressed his admiration for it regularly, and his students followed suit. The March 1936 issue of La Idea Zionistica, published during Mussolini's conquest of Ethiopia, describes a ceremony at Beitar's headquarters. And I quote, The order, Attention, a triple chant ordered by the squad's commanding officer, took place. Viva la Italia! Viva il re! Long live the king! Viva il duce! Long live the leader! The leader il duce was a nickname for Mussolini. It means the leader. And we all know this il duce allied himself with the Fuhrer, another leader, Adolf Hitler, during World War II, hoping that Hitler would support his leadership. But I digress. Let's continue. The order, attention, a triple chant ordered by the squad's commanding officer. Viva la Italia, viva il re, viva il duce, resounded, followed by the benediction, which Rabbi Aldo Lattis invoked in Italian and in Hebrew for God, for the king, and for il duce, that is Jabotinsky. The fascist party anthem, Giovinezza, Quote, continuing from the paper, was sung with much enthusiasm by the Beitarim. End quote. The war ended in May and they marched in a victory parade. Revisionists' attitude towards Mussolini's war was best described in the June 12, 1936 issue of London's World Jewry magazine. Wolfgang van Wiesel, Revisionism's financial director, quote, declared that although opinions among the revisionists varied, in general, they sympathized with fascism. He personally was a supporter of fascism, and he rejoiced at the victory of fascist Italy in Abyssinia as a triumph of the white races against the black, end quote. That again was Lenny Brenner. All the Zionists really wanted to transform the Jews into people of different character and different personality, and they, they argued only on the best way to do it. According to Jabotinsky, the refurbishing of the Jewish people required instilling within them a militant nationalism. He believed that his approach, which is what he called Hadar, which, by the way, is eerily similar to the samurai code of Bushido, was a much more powerful way to destroy the character of what he understood to be a repulsive Yid than making anyone into farmers or living on kibbutzim. Jabotinsky's Hadar personality wasn't merely a way of instilling pride. He was steeped in militaristic ideas, informed largely by Italian fascism, so Jabotinsky believed that physical power, as opposed to intellect or spirituality, was the key to both national achievement and personal achievement. This was a lesson 
which he, in his view, the Jewish people sorely needed to learn and that he took upon himself to teach. In the 1930s, uh, during a conversation with a Polish foreign ministry official, the question came up whether reason or the sword ruled human destiny. Jabotinsky quoted from the German philosopher Ferdinand Lassalle that all that is great owes its triumph to the sword. Although all strains of Zionism wanted the Jews to become strong men, it was Jabotinsky more than anyone else who instilled the value of radical militarism into Zionist ideology. In 1923, Winston Churchill prohibited the Zionists from creating settlements on the east bank of the Jordan River. In response, Jabotinsky wrote an essay called The Iron Wall. He published it in a Russian newspaper, and in it he discussed how Zionists might come to peace with the Arabs. I quote, Every reader has some idea of the early history of other countries which have been settled. I suggest that he recall all known instances. If he should attempt to seek but one instance of a country settled with the consent of those born there, he will not succeed. The inhabitants, no matter whether they are civilized or savages, have always put up a stubborn fight. Furthermore, how the settler acted had no effect whatsoever. The native resisted both barbarian and civilized settler with the same degree of cruelty. Another point, Jabotinsky continues, which had no effect at all, was whether or not there existed a suspicion that the settler wished to remove the inhabitant from his land. Any native people, it's all the same whether they are civilized or savage, views their country as their national home, of which they will always be the complete masters. They will not voluntarily allow not only a new master, but even a new partner. And so it is for the Arabs. We can talk as much as we want about our good intentions, but they understand as well as we what is not good for them. They look upon Palestine with the same instinctive love and true fervor that any Aztec looked upon his Mexico or any Sioux looked upon his prairie. Every indigenous people will resist alien settlers as long as they see any hope of ridding themselves of the danger of foreign settlement. That's what the Arabs in Palestine are doing and what they will persist in doing as long as there remains a solitary spark of hope that they will be able to prevent the transformation of Palestine into the land of Israel. Colonization can have only one goal. For the Palestinian Arabs, this goal is inadmissible. This is the nature of things. To change that nature is impossible. We cannot promise anything to the Arabs of the land of Israel or the Arab countries. Their voluntary agreement is out of the question. Zionist colonization, even the most restricted, must either be terminated or carried out in defense of the will of the native population. This colonization can therefore continue and develop only under the protection of an iron wall, which the native population cannot break through. This is, in total, our policy towards the Arabs. To formulate it any other way would only be hypocrisy. There are no meaningful differences between our quote-unquote militants and our vegetarians. Two brief remarks. In the first place, if anyone objects that this point of view is immoral, I answer, it is not true. Either Zionism is moral and just, or it is immoral and unjust. But that's a question we should have settled before we became Zionists. Actually, we have settled the question, and in the affirmative. We hold that Zionism is moral and just, and since it is moral and just, justice must be done, no matter whether Joseph or Simon or Ivan or Ahmed agree with it or not. And mind you, Jabotinsky was not an 
believing nor a practicing Jew in the slightest. His ideas do not come from Judaism. They come from other places, such as fascism. And Jabotinsky and his philosophy took out of the pantry of isms large servings of militarism and Nietzschean Ibermenschism. None of this stuff is Jewish. And as Jabotinsky just said, whether Zionism is moral or not, and he said it is moral, it has major doses of fascism and radical militarism. Here are some glimpses into the mind and the madness of Vladimir Jabotinsky. Quote, this is about Jews. Our habit of constantly and zealously answering to any rabble has already done us a lot of harm and will do much more. We don't have to apologize for anything. We're a people like all other people. We do not have any intentions to be better than the rest. As one of the first conditions for equality, we demand the right to have our own villains, exactly as other people have them. We are what we are. We are good for ourselves. We will not change, nor do we want to. That was from Jabotinsky in an essay called Instead of Excessive Apology. Here's another one on Jewish identity. Quote, A Jew brought up among the Germans may assume German custom, German words. He may be wholly imbued with that German fluid, but the nucleus of his spiritual structure will always remain Jewish because his blood, his body, his physical racial type are Jewish. It is impossible for a man to become assimilated with people whose blood is different from his own. In order to become assimilated, he must change his body. He must become one of them in blood. There can be no assimilation as long as there is no mixed marriage. An increase in the number of mixed marriages is the only sure and infallible means for the destruction of nationality as such. A preservation of national integrity is impossible, except by a preservation of racial purity. And for that purpose, we are in the need of a territory of our own, where our people will constitute the overwhelming majority. That's an exact quote from Jabotinsky in an essay called A Letter on Autonomy. Now, mind you, we all know that in Judaism, intermarriage is prohibited by religious law. But that's by religious law. It has nothing to do with race. It has nothing to do with blood. In the same way, by the way, not all Jews are allowed to marry other Jews. It has nothing to do with supremacy. It has nothing to do with anything except religious law. We're not allowed to eat pork. And a Kohen, it's one of the Jewish uh, types of people, a descendant of Aaron, Moses' brother, is not allowed, is prohibited by law, by Jewish law, uh, to marry a divorced woman. This is not because divorced women are uh, inferior in Jewish law, not in the slightest, not at all. God's law, just like we can't eat pork, we can't work on the Sabbath, are just religious laws. has nothing to do with race, has nothing to do with blood. It has to do with religion, and Judaism teaches that all laws, although some of them are logical to us, such as thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, honor thy mother and thy father. Uh, others are just God's will, and we don't question it. It's beyond our comprehension. It has nothing to do with race. Now, Jabotinsky was not a believing Jew. He believed in racial segregation. As far as Jewish Judaism is concerned and Jewish values is concerned, without a a religious imperative, without religion, without a religious reason, there is absolutely no reason 
why a Jew should not marry a non-Jew. In fact, without religion, there is no difference between a Jew and a non-Jew. Even with religion, the difference between a Jew and a non-Jew is the religion. But the idea that racial purity must be maintained and even to the point of war, colonization, all these things that he's saying, that's nothing to do with Judaism. Nobody should think that Jabotinsky's ideology, this idea has anything to do with Judaism. He took it from various other places. Religion is important to the Jewish, important. It's the most important thing to the Jewish people. To Jabotinsky, it wasn't important at all. Race is not important at all to the Jewish people. There are Jews who are white, who are black, who are of all races, and they're all equal. But race was important to Jabotinsky. In fact, he believed that the Jewish people are a race, which is, of course, nonsense. I'll have one more quote from Jabotinsky now, and this is a quote on education. We know that education to the Jewish people is the most important thing in the world. We teach proper character traits, one of which is a extreme revulsion for violence, the type of, of revulsion for violence that Jabotinsky hated in the Jews. I'll tell you a story that one of my rabbis told me. He was once going with his uh, dean of his school. The dean was Rabbi Aaron Kotler, one of the greatest uh, rabbis of his generation, perhaps the greatest, depends who you ask. He was the founder of the Lakewood Yeshiva, today the largest yeshiva in the world located in Lakewood, New Jersey, Ocean County. Uh, my rabbi was going with Rabbi Cutler to collect money, to collect a donation for the yeshiva from a particular wealthy donor. And when he gets into the house, he grabs this rabbi, this who was then a student, a driver. He was just there to drive Rabbi Cutler there and back. He grabs the student by his wrist and he says to him, uh, we're getting out of here. He did it in such a way that the wealthy donor would not notice, and uh, he turned around and he just you know, said goodbye, and he got out of He ran out of there, and the driver asked him, Rabbi, what happened? He said, a gun. I saw a gun in this guy's house. A gun. And apparently, the way I understand the story, the gun was displayed. I guess it was like a rifle or a musket or something. For somebody to display a gun, a weapon of, of death... As if it was an ornament, he couldn't stay in the same house. That's Jewish values. And education, we educate people to know, educate our children. Ezehu Oshir, Hasamech Bechelkoi, who is wealthy, somebody who's happy with what he has. Ezehu Gibor, who is a strong man. somebody who conquers his own urges, someone who conquers himself. Let's see what Jabotinsky has to say about education. Quote, for this generation now growing before our eyes and whose shoulders will fall the responsibility for the greatest turning point in our history, the Aleph Bays, the ABC, is very simple. Young men learn to shoot, end quote. The Aleph Bays, the basic ABC that we need to teach the next generation, young men learn to shoot, that's it. Jabotinsky and Ben-Gurion were arch enemies. Each wanted control over Zionism and to make it over in his own image. Ben-Gurion's people considered the revisionists no better than, than Jewish fascists. Jabotinsky and his people, his students, were, were not satisfied for their militarism to be merely a tool to protect Jews. To the revisionists, who remember, later morphed into the Likud, 
the military is not merely a way to defend one's country, it's an ideal. As Bensi and Netanyahu Jabotinsky's personal secretary and father of Benjamin Netanyahu put it, quote, Jabotinsky viewed military service as not only a duty performed for the sake of honor, a civil and human duty, but even a sublime value that the state is based upon, end quote. We need to digest this. Military service is not merely a duty, but a sublime value. And not just a sublime value. It is a sublime value that the state is based upon. Therefore, Jabotinsky agreed to introduce into the Jewish state even hardened criminals who had served out their sentences while refusing to let in army deserters from any country. There's a difference between a military and militarism. A military is pragmatic and necessary for security. Militarism is an ideal, an ism. Jabotinsky believed in militarism, not merely a military. He held that, quote, and this is also a quote from Netanyahu's father, there is good and bad militarism, and that military education also contains certain exalted values, which only it can impart, end quote. That's what Jabotinsky believed. And indeed, Jabotinsky elevated the value of militarism, like fascists, to the level of the mystical and spiritual. Quote, this is from Jabotinsky himself in something called Sefer Beitar, the Book of Beitar. Quote, this is the third attempt to forge the Zionist movement. Pinsker made the first attempt, Herzl the second, and we're currently engaged in the third. The revisionist movement will develop and grow. It will become a majority within Zionism and then will become Zionism itself. Beitar will be the moral and spiritual lawgiver for all Jewish youth. End quote. Is that amazing? Was he not right about Beitarism? Was he not right about his revisionist ideology? Is it not today what Jabotinsky said it would become? I, I must read that again. The revisionist movement will develop and grow. It will become a majority within Zionism and then will become Zionism itself. Beitar will be the moral and spiritual lawgiver for all Jewish youth. And mind you, in those days, it was almost unforeseeable that revisionism would become a majority of Zionists. Ben-Gurion and his labor people had the majority for the longest time, until 1977 when Menachem Begin won the elections. There wasn't even a, a revisionist prime minister at all. But Jabotinsky says that eventually, as revisionism, his ideology will become Zionism itself. And not only Zionism, the moral and spiritual lawgiver for all Jewish youth, youth in particular. Is this not amazing? Moral and spiritual lawgiver. <laughs> and one example, one of the less violent examples of the moral and spiritual laws handed down by Beitarism was the habit of beating up Jews who spoke Yiddish instead of Hebrew. Militaristic nationalism was glorified by the revisionists just as it was glorified by the nationalisms of other militant countries. The sword was not merely a tool with which to protect oneself, but a value, a mark of honor, a way to be proud of oneself. As time passed, Jabotinsky's movement became increasingly militaristic and increasingly dominated with the warrior ideology. Jabotinsky himself had to scold Beitar for its associating with Nazis. He scolded them. Quote, Hitlerism, he said, remains Schweinerei 
in spite of the enthusiasm of millions which impresses our youth so much. He created a monster that got out of control. I'm not telling you anything new. Anyone who knows history already knows this. The history of Israel, the history of Zionism. I'm just telling you that nobody should think this is Judaism, that this has anything to do with Jewishness. Jabotinsky got his ideology from all sorts of places, not at all from Jewishness, that it was from Jewishness that he wanted to escape. You can't blame Jabotinsky for being upset that his Beitar youth were impressed with Hitlerism. But that's the natural effect of Jabotinsky's glorifying militant nationalism, something he worked hard to instill within his youth groups, his youth groups, as well. As militant as Jabotinsky was, his followers became even more militant than he, and their militancy more central to Zionist ideology than his. The leader of the Irgun and later Prime Minister of Israel, Menachem Begin, explained how, in his opinion, militancy was destined to become not merely an accessory of Zionism, but its essential defining attribute, quote, from Menachem Begin, we are about to enter the third period of Zionism. The national movement of Israel began with practical Zionism, then came political Zionism, and now we're standing, standing on the threshold of military Zionism, end quote. He also modified the oath of the Beitar gang that Jabotinsky authored. Previously, it said, quote, I will train to fight in defense of my people and I will only use my strength for defense, end quote. Begin proposed, quote, I will train to fight in the defense of my people and to conquer the homeland. Jabotinsky was not happy. There were many things he found disturbing about the long-winded speech in which Begin said that crazy statement. Jabotinsky interrupted Begin several times during that speech, and eventually Jabotinsky couldn't contain himself. He scolded Begin for Begin's excessive militancy. He said that Begin's speech was useless noise, like the squeaking of a door that has no purpose. Says the, by Jabotinsky said the reason why a squeaking door disturbs people more than other types of noise, like noise of machinery, is because machinery noise uh, represents a machine actually accomplishing something, but the squeaking of a door accomplishes nothing, and that bothers people. He said Begin's statement, Begin's speech, was like that kind of noise. He said that Zionists must rely on the conscience of nations and not exclusively on their own power, but it was too late. The monster that Jabotinsky created was already out of control. Jabotinsky's militarism was already out of control. Fighting and dying and sacrificing became their pride and glory. They were trained to live by the sword. With the founding of Israel in 1948, Begin founded the Cheirus or Heirut party, and in 1973 founded the Likud. In 77, Begin became prime minister, and this change of the guard added Begin's supercharged version of Jabotinsky's militant tribal ideology on top of Ben-Gurion's socialist statist ideology to comprise a new character for Zionism. Historian Anita Shapira describes it thus, quote, the, Likud's par the, the Likud party's rise to power in 1977 signified an upsurge in Israeli society of traditionalist rightist currents opposite the Zionist socialist rebellion against Jewish tradition in the form of the old Jew, there now arose groups who stressed the continuity of Jewish history and advanced conservative views about Jews and non-Jews. As far as they were concerned, hatred of the state of Israel was an expression of the traditional hatred of Jews. End quote. Stop right there. You know this whole nonsense that they have nowadays about anti-Zionism being anti-Semitism? 
this started then. This idea that Israel represents the Jews. Remember, fascism and actually organic nationalism, uh, to an extent, believes that the country, the state, is the person, and the people are just kind of cells in the organism, but the organism is the country. Let's continue. As far as they were concerned, hatred of the state of Israel was an expression of the traditional hatred of Jews. They considered any criticism of the state of Israel suspect of anti-Semitic motives and thus inadmissible. The necessary conclusion from this mode of thinking was that Israel need not concern itself with the criticism leveled at it, since it was based not on her conduct, but on age-old prejudice and animus. The Likud's rise to power was concomitant with an additional change in consciousness. The Holocaust became a central component of Israeli identity. Begin, more so than any of his pre predecessors, kept bringing up the Holocaust as an indictment to the world's nations, gainsaying their moral right to preach to Israel, end quote. So if you want to know what happened over here in the last Israeli elections, what happened was the connection between ideas just by osmosis came to its its natural, organic, logical conclusion. The idea that the state is the people and that Jews are a race and that militarism is the way to, to go. All of these ideas are interrelated. And the idea that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, which we think was, is a recent innovation, started, it was a result, it was a result of the Jabotinskyite thinking. Because if Israel is the Jews, Israel is the Jew, the Jews are just organs or limbs or cells within the organic body, then anti-Semitism means you, you hate Israel. Remember, uh, fascism glorifies the states, not merely as a corporation-type combination of human beings that work together to preserve it and are loyal to it uh, for the uh, good of all, but the, an actual thing that is a pseudo-idol that's worshipped in a way, that you give your life for, that you kill for, and the state is, is your identity. And this whole idea that Zionists claim that Israel is their identity, Zionism is their identity, it really doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. Zionism is an ideology, not an identity. But if you consider the idea of uh, fascist ideology, and we'll go into it another time, the statist ideology of Ben-Gurion that also contributed to this, but it was mostly Jabotinsky. This idea, this Jabotinskyite idea that the state is the cause, the state is the purpose, the state is the, the essence of the people, the people are just ways to further the state, the whole identity of the people is in the state. We understand why together with the pushing of the idea of that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism also dragged along with that idea was the success, the enormous success of Jabotinsky's, the rest of Jabotinsky's ideology, because ideologies tend to be whole. When you prop up part of an ideology, the rest of the ideology tends to come with it. And when we propped up the, we, they, the Zionists propped up the idea that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, they also encouraged 
the source of that idea, the roots of that idea, the only way that that idea, or the easiest way for that idea to make any sense, it's a philosophy that worships the state, and the only way worshiping the state makes sense is based on organic nationalism, which means the people are an entity, not a collection, but a singular race or ethnicity or what have you, something that binds the people together, and it's not just common ground. It has to be organic. And once you have organic ethnic nationalism, you have the Likud, and you have, as Jabotinsky said, revisionism, Jabotinsky's ideology, supercharged by Begin and today's Zionists, even more so after him, who have become not merely the majority of Zionism, but the, for all practical purposes, Zionism itself. And if there's one thing to take out of this, it's that despite the settlers wearing yarmulkes and payas, their ideology, their values, have nothing to do with Judaism. To paraphrase Jabotinsky, Zionism, whether moral or immoral, is actually the exact opposite of Judaism.